I'm Maggie John, and this is Context Beyond the Headlines, a place for conversations with newsmakers, culture shapers, and peacekeepers, where we explore the intersection between faith, justice, ethics, and society. This week is part one of two on apologies. In March, a delegation of Indigenous elders, residential school survivors, and youth traveled to the Vatican. They shared stories of the atrocities and suffering experienced at residential schools and the intergenerational trauma that still exists today. They were also seeking an apology from the head of the Catholic Church, Pope Francis. After three days of hearing their stories, the Pope finally apologized. We speak with one Indigenous woman who witnessed the apology and what that meant for her community. And later we discuss our so what. Before we set out to do any show, we first ask ourselves, so what? Why is this topic something for us to speak into? And how can we best speak into it as a Christian current affairs show? Our senior producer, Hannah Vanderkoy, joins me to discuss and gives her thoughts on what healing and reconciliation could mean for Christians and indigenous people. We never lost faith in, in the spirit or the creator or a greater being. It was really losing faith in the institution of the Catholic Church. And that's, that's where the trust has to be rebuilt. Cassidy Karen is the president of the Métis National Council, and she was part of the Métis delegation to the Vatican. She joins me now. Cassidy Karen, thank you so much for joining us today on Context. Thank you for having me. Most recently, you've been in the news because you have called for the Queen, the head of the Anglican Church, to apologize for the atrocities at residential schools. Um, you had the opportunity to meet Prince Charles while he was in Canada. How was that received? Uh, it was really actually well received. I do feel as though uh, the prince was receptive to the opportunity to meet with Indigenous people while he was here in Canada, and especially to meet with survivors. And, you know, that call really did come from one of the survivors who I am very close with, um, a Métis residential school survivor, who mentioned, you know, Everybody has a role to play within reconciliation. And, and when reconciliation begins, it, it has to start with truth. And truth uh, comes with that acknowledgement of the history of this country. And, and even if it is difficult to understand, people have to know that truth. And so when I spoke with the Pope, I did, I talked to him about, you know, it's really important that to our survivors that there is an acknowledgement. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and he was very receptive of that because, you know, I also talked about, we're not stuck in the past mm -hmm. as, as the Métis Nation and, and our survivors are certainly not stuck in the past. People are wanting to move forward. There's some really incredible work being done in our communities to heal and to rebuild. And we talked talked about how it, it's our young people connecting with our elders, revitalizing and reclaiming our traditions and our culture and, and moving forward in such a good way. And that there's a there's a role for people to play. And, you know, that has to be part of the acknowledgement as well. And yeah, he was very he was very receptive to the conversation. And uh, yeah, it was a good opportunity to have that conversation. Yeah, I love what you said, Cassidy, because truth is a central part of of moving forward. You know, you have to acknowledge what has happened in the past in order to move forward. 
and again, not rehashing or not wanting to forgive, but acknowledging the wrong that has been done is so important. Mm -hmm. The Métis delegation met with Pope Francis in March. What was that meeting like for you? Yeah, I, it was certainly one that I never thought would happen. And uh, why, did, you why know, didn't you think it was going to happen? Why? <laughs> it just seems so big and so monumental yeah. um, and such a historic opportunity. It's it's one that previous leadership and, and residential school survivors have been advocating for for years. And, uh, you know, the invitation to bring a delegation of Métis people over to the Vatican actually came to me a week after I was elected to this role as the president of the Métis National Council. Wow. And so it happened really quickly. Uh, originally, the meeting was supposed to take place in December of 2021. Um, but of course, there was complications with the rise of the Omicron variant, um, the, the global pandemic. And so keeping in mind that the majority of folks who we were bringing over are survivors who are in their 80s and uh, and and quite elderly, their health and, and safety was our number one priority. So we postponed the trip to, to the end of March. And really, it was an incredible opportunity to spend the time going around our country, meeting with residential school survivors, understanding the stories and perspectives that they wanted shared with the Pope. Mm. And that's what we made it about at the Métis National Council. We made it about our survivors. We made it about elevating their stories and their voices and their experiences. We were only allowed to have eight official delegates meet with the Pope. And that number was set by both the Vatican and the Canadian Conference of Catholic Bishops. And to represent the diversity of the Métis Nation with eight individuals is 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 challenging. Yeah. But I think we did an incredible job. And again, really focusing on highlighting the voices of our survivors and giving them that space to tell their truths. And that's exactly what we did in our one hour private meeting with the Pope. Um, the time was spent, our three Métis survivors, they shared their stories, they shared their truths. And uh, Pope Francis, he sat there and he listened. And I do truly believe that it was an opportunity um, for our stories to impact that one individual who can have so much impact and, and influence on change, positive change moving forward. And so we really seized that opportunity. And, uh, you know, we are now opening doors to continuing to moving forward down this path of reconciliation. That's incredible. So again, didn't think that this trip would ever happen. It happens. And then on the trip, the Pope decides to officially apologize. Mm -hmm. What was that like, not just for you, but also for the survivors that were sitting with you? So for me, it was all about the survivors who I was yeah. sitting with. And um, yeah, the apology to those three survivors who were in the front row that I was sitting directly beside, it had such an impact on their lives. Mm. They felt heard, mm -hmm. they felt listened to, and that's something that they haven't had their whole lives. You know, they lived in fear of sharing their stories for, for fear of not being believed that, that this has happened because 
for a long time, these stories were not being talked about. This truth was not being spoken about. And so for somebody who has the ability to influence such change on such a great scale, to them, it meant a lot. And um, for me to be with those survivors and to actually feel their reaction, it was it was incredibly moving. But it wasn't emotional for me in that exact moment. I was there to support our survivors. Mm -hmm. The moment that I actually became very emotional was was following the apology when we had two of our young Métis fiddlers um, go and perform uh, for the Pope, for the world, because it was live streamed. And to be sitting in between our young people who are doing such incredible work at revitalizing our traditional ways and so proud of who we are and, and able to publicly show that pride in being Métis and sitting beside, on the other side of me, uh, three survivors who had to hide who they were, had to go through a time where they were told that they couldn't be proud of who they are. They couldn't speak their language. They couldn't love they were their love was taken away from them and so in that moment being in between you know such hope for the future and 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 this generation that is currently healing um it was incredibly moving and incredibly powerful and um i love to share that story about you know the people who were in the room and those who who were directly impacted i hear stories from survivors back here um, on our homelands and that it had an impact on them too for some, the apology wasn't strong enough um, that the Pope apologized for certain individuals within this institution, where we know that it was the institution that facilitated these harms. And for some, they need a stronger apology. They need an acknowledgement that it was the institution that facilitated and, and, and perpetuated these harms to our people and our communities. Um, so while it's an incredible step forward and, and it's so meaningful for many, we do still have a, a long way to go and, you know, apologies need to be followed through with action and actions speak louder than words. And so we are still moving down that pathway, but like I say, it moved us forward, it opened doors and uh, it was an incredibly uh, a powerful moment. Cassidy, can I say, I was not in the room, <laughs> and I do not have Métis history in my blood, but when I saw the Métis fiddlers and other indig and Indigenous people being represented in that room and being able to give their gifts of their talents and being able to be fully themselves, I teared up because mm -hmm. it meant a lot. It means a lot mm -hmm. to, to know that this group who was a part of silencing, silencing a group of people and telling them that being themselves was not enough to finally be able to, on a global scale, present that was so powerful. So I agree with you. I think, um, I think it was heard by the world that day. Mm. Absolutely. Um, residential school survivor, Angie Creerar, who uh, came out of that meeting, quite emotional. You were standing right beside her. Here is a clip of her response to meeting the Pope. It helped erase the 20 long years that I had spent to meet a gentle, kind of person and even got a hug. What were 
were some of the other responses you heard from conversations with survivors and elders and youth after that meeting about just their just their experience of just actually being there, present there in the moment? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, first of all, Angie is just, I love her so dearly. Mm. And she's actually one of my elders who's taught me so much about the the past where love was taken away from our people mm. and and how she had to reach back to a time before residential schools with her family and remembering that sense of love and that's that's where her resiliency comes from and now she just spreads love like uh like no one else i know and so that's um just she's such an incredible incredible woman and and so strong um you know i i the stories that I hear from, you know, the survivors that that were there, again, I think it just really comes down to the fact that we had a platform to share our stories. We had a, a platform to share these experiences. And that has never existed at, at such a scale before. Um, I think back to uh, National Chief Phil Fontaine, who was with us. He was part of the uh, um, Assembly of First Nations delegation. He was one of the first individuals who really started speaking about the horrors of residential school and the the sexual abuse that took place at these schools and that he endured. He was one of the first people who started speaking publicly about that. And, you know, I can't imagine the feedback that he got during those times when he started talking about that, that it wasn't okay to talk about that, that, you know, we shouldn't be talking about these things. And for him to then be able to share these stories with the Pope and then receive that initial apology and acknowledgement that, yes, this happened. It, it was so important in, in us moving forward. Um, there's still many people in Canada and around the world that deny that this has ever happened. This wasn't written in Canadian history textbooks. And because it's not written in a textbook, people believe that it's it's a lie. Yeah. And that denialism causes a lot of pain in our communities. And it really, you know, it puts up barriers and obstacles for us to continue moving down this pathway for reconciliation. And so now for us to have this global scale to share our stories, to share these experiences, to share how these experiences continue to impact our communities today through intergenerational trauma. It starts raising that awareness. And then of course, with, with the Pope himself recognizing that these harms happened, it starts to erase the ability to deny that this happened, Mm -hmm. though it still exists. It's, it's moving us away from that denialism. And, and I do, I, again, just, it was an incredible opportunity to to really highlight something that was so negative, but also showcase the hope and the positivity and the incredible success that our people have had in being resilient and uh, and and pride in who we are. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Just so powerful. You you were raised Catholic, Cassidy. Your grandmother was Catholic. With all the history of the church and Métis people, how has this impacted your faith? So it's really interesting because, again, if you think about the times and, and, and in our history where this wasn't talked about and 
it wasn't being taught and it wasn't okay to be to to talk about this publicly that's the time that I was being brought up in the catholic church mm. so of course I didn't know and I wasn't able to make connections to what had happened in the past um after my grandmother passed away it was just my choice you know to to leave the catholic church mm-hmm. it uh, it was a faith that didn't really resonate with me um to be you know in an, a, a church to have to pray mm-hmm. um that that just wasn't part of of who i am and so i did i i, I don't practice the catholic faith any longer um, and that choice actually happened before I really understood the harms that the Catholic Church did to our people. And so to think back um, on that and that I, I came to that decision before that, it, it is a different story. I think there's still a lot of people in our communities who um, who who didn't know these stories. And then when, of course, you know, it really came to, to light on a global scale. Um, this time last year, when the announcement from uh, Kamloops uh, Indian Residential School, and they found the the unmarked graves, it really shook a lot of people, and and really brought to light the connection of the Catholic Church and residential schools and harms that were done. And um, you know, there's there's a lot of work to be done. It's interesting because as as a Métis person, you know, my connection to the spirit isn't tied to the church. Mm -hmm. Um, And my, my connection to a greater being, the creator, um, it, 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 that was never shook. I think it was, and this is the same for many Métis people, is that um, we never lost faith in, in the spirit or the creator or a greater being. It was really losing faith in the institution of the Catholic church. And that's, that's where the trust has to be rebuilt. We don't have to rebuild relationships with a spirit. We have to rebuild relationships with an institution, which is the Catholic Church. And I think that that's an interesting thing to kind of think about. And, and the role of the Pope and, you know, the Canadian Conference of Catholic Bishops as we continue to move forward is, is building that relationship. Um, if that's what individuals, communities, and our nation want. Yeah. Do you think being on this delegation and hearing the apology from the Pope is a step in rebuilding that relationship with that institution? For some, um, for some, yes. Uh, For others, maybe not. Others may not need that relationship, I suppose, moving forward. Um, But where that that apology really comes into play again, just comes down to the acknowledgement that uh, that these survivors need to to move forward in their healing journey and i think that itself is enough for me to continue advocating for Mm. the metis delegation presented the pope with a booklet on the residential school experiences of metis people uh, the long-lasting impacts and a pathway forward that includes truth reconciliation justice and healing and you invited the pope on that journey I want to go through each of these paths, starting with truth. What are you calling on the church to commit to for truth? There's a, a number of different actions, and th- that's exactly what's outlined in this book, yeah. is um, tangible actions that the Pope, the Catholic Church as an institution, the Canadian Conference of Catholic Bishops can commit to and can implement 
which will contribute to steps forward down this path of reconciliation. And that's exactly, yeah, that's, that's what we did was we, we identified some actions because we knew that an apology was one step. That's where it starts, but it, it needs to be followed by action. And so we did um, invite the Pope on a journey, on our journey, one that we're already engaged in. We're already moving down pathways of, of truth, justice, and, and healing and uh, have many different avenues to do that work. But we wanted to invite the Catholic Church and the Pope and the bishops along on this journey. And so we wanted to show them that there are tangible actions that can be committed to. And so, you know, within truth, there's actions such as we, we put in there because it was written before the apology, um, an apology from, from the Catholic Church for their role in residential schools. And I think that one still does stand for hopefully when, when the Pope does come to Canada, that he can deliver a stronger apology um, that is inclusive of what our survivors want to hear in that apology. I think that's important. If, if the Catholic Church is, is really wanting to be meaningful in this apology, they need to understand what they're apologizing for and what our survivors want to hear. There's also a lot of work to do under truth in that we need unfettered access to church records, mm -hmm. church records that existed within the communities where our children were taken away from their families. For so long, we've been advocating for the release of residential school records, but we've come to understand that the way that records were kept within these communities, it wasn't institution by institution. So residential schools, of course, they had some records, but to understand the full story of what took place in our communities, to understand the truth, we need unfettered access to church records. So any records that a priest was keeping when he, he arrived in our communities and started writing down in his journal about, you know, um, maybe something as mundane as uh, what he had for supper that night. But you might flip a page and in there it'll say, uh, the Boucher family arrived in this community today, they have three children. Mm. And then maybe in a, a journal a few months later, you find another sentence in there that says, uh, we we brought three of of the Boucher children to this school. And then maybe a few years later, a priest writes about only one of those Boucher children returned home. Those, those records tell a story. They tell us the truth of what actually happened. And we don't have that full picture just from residential school records. So part of truth is having access to these records so that we can really understand the truth of, of what happened in these communities. Yeah. The next step is reconciliation. And, you know, in, in speaking to other um, survivors of residential school, um, reconciliation looks very different for each person. And so in that document, in that booklet, what, what does reconciliation mean um, as you want the, the Catholic Church to take those steps? So, you know, reconciliation, there's a lot. First of all, there's a role for everybody to play within reconciliation, whether it's big or small, or even just taking the time to understand these things that have happened in our history. That's a part of reconciliation. 
we wanted to identify some of the different ways that the Catholic Church could participate in what we would understand to be reconciliation coming from the church. One of those pieces, you know, is reconciling the history that has taken place and that part of that is that there are many items that have been stolen from our communities that now exist in museums over at the Vatican. There's a an anthropological museum that's over there that houses a lot of these items. And some of them, again, they tell stories of our communities. They are spiritual and cultural items and they hold mass amounts of significance to our communities. Part of reconciling that history is acknowledging that these were stolen items and finding pathways to return them home, bring them back to our communities where we can take care of these items. We can then make them available to community members who may never have the opportunity to travel over to Rome to go and visit one of these items. That's very unattainable for many of our community members. And so part of reconciliation is, is understanding that, uh, that that work has to be done. And so, you know, there's a lot of different things and that's one of those tangible actions within reconciliation that, that the Vatican can have a huge role to play in. Yeah. And justice. Justice is next on that list. Explain that for me. Yeah. You know, this one, this one's pretty heavy. Um, the justice that has to take place to, to move down that path of reconciliation. There's quite a few different pieces. One of them, and it, it shone through uh, in the media while we were over there through the, the positions that the Inuit delegation uh, was taking. Part of justice is a commitment from the Catholic Church, from the Vatican, from the Pope, that they will not shield alleged perpetrators of these crimes um, from, from, you know, facing uh, court, facing justice. Um, we know that, you know, residential schools, the last one didn't close until uh, the mid-90s. So individuals who perpetuated these harms against our people, they're still living. And so regardless of their age, they, they should you know, they should be brought to justice. And we know that the Catholic Church shields these alleged perpetrators from being extradited to Canada to face trial. And so part of justice is a commitment from the Catholic Church that that this needs to stop, that they will not shield these alleged perpetrators, because there's many families and communities who know that these these perpetrators are still living and, you know, they won't be able to move forward on their healing paths until justice is is done there. Um, so that's that's really important. And, you know, I encourage any listener to really um, seek out the stories that um, that the president of the ITK, uh, the Inuit Tapirik Kanatomi, um, was sharing while he was over there about uh, one of those priests who had done some incredibly harmful things to, to his communities and uh, now lives in France, which is a country that doesn't extradite uh, criminals back to Canada to face trial. Um, so I, I encourage you to look that up. And another piece within justice that we were advocating for and, and will continue to advocate for is, you know, making it part of canon law, the church's ultimate authority, the law that they follow, that it would be essentially illegal or unjust to deny that these harms ever took place within residential schools and that the Catholic Church, to deny that the Catholic Church had any role to play in that. 
And, you know, in, I think it's about 13 or 16 countries across the world, it is actually illegal to deny uh, the harms of um, the Holocaust and that this took place. It's illegal to do so. And so we want to make it illegal for individuals within the Catholic Church to deny or diminish the harms that were done within the Catholic Church. And again, we advocate for this because there are still priests and, and maybe even bishops here in Canada that try to diminish some of these harms that took place in our communities. And, you know, that's that's not reconciliation. That's not acknowledging the truth of our, our, our history. And uh, it doesn't contribute to our healing path forward. And the last step is healing. So healing is one that like I say, our communities are already engaged in, and we wanted to identify different ways that the Catholic Church could play a role in this. And healing is so important to us, but it has to be directed by our communities. Mm -hmm. The churches cannot come into our communities and tell us how to heal. That's, that's not the way that it has to be. It has to be us from a grassroots perspective, our elders, our survivors, our young people identifying the different ways that we need to heal ourselves and to rebuild our communities, to revitalize um, and and uh, learn, relearn our cultures, um, to move forward in a good way so that we can prosper in the ways that our ancestors wanted us to. Mm -hmm. And there's a role for the Catholic Church to play in that. Um, they can be a part of that healing journey if they so wish. Uh, part of that is, um, you know, financial uh, means so that our communities can do this work. What's really interesting, and, and we've had the ability to use this platform to really talk about in the last little while, is that a um, majority of Métis residential school survivors did not receive um, the justice that they so deserve through the Indian residential school school settlement agreement, that class action lawsuit that took place here in Canada. When that class action lawsuit was happening, it was really, you know, the church's lawyers and, and the Canadian government's lawyers negotiating, negotiating, negotiating until they dwindled down the list of recognized residential schools here in this country to, I, I think it's about 130 or 140 residential schools. And the way that they did that was because they said that they had to be federally funded residential schools. But there was a, an administrative and a legal nuance in our history where some of these schools were provincially funded. Some of them were funded directly by the church. Some of them, um, some of our, our children were taken away uh, and just put into the schools, but not really recorded as a student that went to a federally funded school. And because of that, our a lot of our survivors didn't receive the justice or, you know, the, the reparation payments that they deserve. Um, and so to raise awareness of the fact that there were hundreds more residential schools that existed here in Canada than just those ones that were recognized by the Indian Residential School Settlement Agreement, that's part of reconciliation. Understanding that there were so many more of these schools with the same intent to cause harm to our people. And um, and, and to take the love and the culture and, and our, our just our way of being away from us. And so, you know, there's so much healing to be done. There's so much truth to be told. And again, you know, if the Catholic Church and the Pope and the Vatican and all of those who fall within want to contribute to, to reconciliation moving forward, these were some of the tangible actions that we identified.
And I'm curious, have you heard a response from the Pope on these four paths that you presented to him? No, not yet. Um, however, we are in the midst of um, hearing about the plans uh, that the Pope has when he does come to Canada. Mm -hmm. um, that has been officially announced and it is going to be happening. And, you know, our, we knew that the Pope had already committed to, to visiting Canada before we, we went to the Vatican. And so it was our intent to leave him with this book so that he could really continue to reflect on our stories and our pathway forward between the time when we were there and the time that he comes to Canada. And so it's our hope that when he does come here, that he will a, a deliver a stronger apology to more survivors here on our homelands, but also, you know, commit to some of the actions that we've outlined in, in that book that we left with him. Yeah. Just on that note, as the Pope is coming to Canada, what is important for the Pope and the Catholic Church to get right on this momentum, momentous mm -hmm. trip? I mean, there's a lot. Yeah, um, yeah it, it's going to be it's going to be quite a big trip um, in a short amount of time, and in an ideal world the Pope would have spent more time in Canada, would have spent more time visiting our communities, would have spent more time visiting as many residential school sites that still stand, that have been torn down and visiting those unmarked graves. Um, but we do recognize that, you know, the Pope was limited in, in his abilities because of, of his age and his health. And also, you know, the vastness of this country, it, it takes, a day to travel from one end of the country to to another. And uh, of course, with his schedule, um, it, it is limited. And so, you know, the, the three sites, the three general locations have been selected by the Vatican. And from here on out, we do hope that, you know, they will take into consideration feedback from uh, our three national Indigenous organizations who are connected to our communities and to our survivors who can provide that input into making this as successful as possible. And, you know, in, in our perspective, what would make this trip successful is that the Pope does deliver this stronger apology, acknowledging the, the role of the Catholic Church as an institution in, in our history. Um, and a success indicator for that would be how many survivors are actually in attendance, get to actually be there to hear that apology. The more survivors who want to be there, I think they should have the opportunity to. And the more that are there, I think that that would indicate one of those, those success pieces. Um, and then another one, of course, is, is commitment to action. You know, this trip could really be that simple is for the Pope to visit meaningful places to Indigenous people in this country, to deliver that apology and to commit to a pathway of action moving forward. It, uh, it's, that would be, you know, I know that would be a lot of work, but I think it is as simple as that. Yeah. How will the Métis Nation be represented on this papal visit? To be quite honest with you, I don't know at okay. this point. Um, the, the process of planning a papal visit is uh, is a process that I don't understand. Mm. Um, it's one that even before we left for the Vatican, I was asking, you know, I was asking for. I said, can you explain to me what the process is? 
where I will be involved, where the Métis Nation will be involved, what decisions do we get to contribute to? What help do you need from us? What support can we provide to you? Um, and I've never actually received that that process. And so right now, actually, you know, I know that it's being implemented. I know that this planning is taking place. We have a member who sits on an official uh, program planning committee so that they're part of planning the program. Um, but I do know that there's other working groups that are out there that are planning the different initiatives that uh, I have not been a part of. Um, I, there is going to be an in-person meeting with the National Indigenous Organizations and the Canadian Conference of Catholic Bishops uh, a couple weeks from now. And I, I hope that we'll understand the process a little bit better there. Um, but, you know, it's important to me that, that we have a say in, in how this goes, because like I say, you know, our input is as simple as a stronger apology, make it uh, accessible to as many survivors as possible and a commitment to action. Um, it, it can be that simple and it, it doesn't have to be any more complex than that. But I understand there are complexities in uh, planning an official papal visit and, you know, the, the Vatican itself has their own uh, uh, policies, procedures, regulations that they have to follow. Um, so from my perspective, if I were to, to know that process, to understand that process a little bit more, uh, I think we would be able to have more uh, more ability to support this process. Yeah. Last question for you, Cassidy. With stories and impacts from residential schools also come the reality, as, as you've alluded to, to intergenerational trauma. What roles does the next generation have in that pathway to reconciliation and healing? Uh, the, again, everybody has a role to play, including the next generation. And, uh, you know, intergenerational trauma, it's actually, it's been proven that uh, through science that intergenerational trauma is actually embedded in our DNA. So we're passing the impacts of these traumas down through our generations. So the role that, you know, young Indigenous people such as myself are playing right now is is now that we are talking about these things, there's more ability to have these conversations and to understand, you know, why is it that that my family is this way or that my community does this this way? Um, and, you know, people my age um, are my generation are starting to identify themselves as first generation cycle breakers. And, and it's because of that resilience of our, our elders and the generations that came before us who started to have these conversations, started to identify that this, this is happening, this trauma still exists in our communities and our families today. And so, you know, the support that our young people need to do the work to break these cycles is immense. It takes an immense amount of, you know, um, you need strong and resilient mental health, physical health, uh, the ability to to do this work for our families and our future generations. It takes a toll on our young people. Um, and there's a role, again, for, for young um, Canadians, non-Indigenous people to play uh, as they move forward, too, into in continuing under, to understand this history and to make sure that it, it doesn't, again, go forward being hidden or buried. We need to talk about what has happened in Canada to be able to move forward together to build a brighter future for all of us. 
And we have to stop pretending that these things didn't happen. And so for younger people uh, to learn these stories and to then share them with their future generations, to make sure that these stories are being accurately recorded and, and spoken about, however difficult it is, it's important that we keep talking about it, that this conversation continues, and that we keep talking about the ways that we are moving forward. Again, to not always be stuck in in the trauma or the negativity and and that past, but to celebrate the success that we've had in being resilient and and moving forward in such a positive way. Um, you know, there's there's just there's a role for everybody to play, and I think uh, yeah, like I say, ways to keep these conversations moving. Thanks so much, Cassie. You are such a great representative representative of your community. You really are. Thank you for spending some time with us on Context today. Thank you so much. All right, I'm now joined by our senior producer, Hannah Vanderkoy. Hey, Hannah. Hi. So this is our So What segment. We always, as a team, get together and ask, so what, before we think of any show topic. Why was it important for us to uh, talk to Cassidy and really delve into this topic of apology? Well, the apology happened in March. We did a show on it. But the Pope is coming to Canada, and that's what the... Um, Truth and Reconciliation Calls to Action calls for is for an apology to happen right here in Canada. So we kind of wanted to do a a temperature check. Like Mm -hmm. we talked to people immediately after the apology. Um, We got their reaction. But now she's come home. She's come back to her community. How has it felt and, and what's next? So it was great to talk to her about that. What were some of the things that stood up for you and what Cassidy had to say? I think um, it was the clip we played at the beginning that the spirit and the creator never left. Yeah. Um, that relationship is still there, but the, the relationship with the institution still needs to be rebuilt. Mm-hmm. And I think when we talk about apologies, that's really important um, for rebuilding that relationship. Another thing was she talked about second generation cycle, cycle breakers. Mm, yeah. And that was... Um, really empowering to hear. She is a big advocate for youth, Mm -hmm. for the next generation. That's, that's what she was involved in before she became uh, Métis National Council president. Um, So it was just really uh, cool to hear. And and she referred to the fiddlers at the Vatican. Yeah. I think those were two things that she mentioned that really gave me goosebumps and resonated with. Yes. First, um, the, the discussion about uh, her connection with the creator never ending and really just it's the reconciliation of institution that's so important um, because sometimes I think we blur the lines between Jesus and the institution and unfortunately we don't always do a good job as leaders of institutions in representing Jesus and then also yes as she talked about finally being able to present culture present talents that are unique to Indigenous people, to the Métis, to the Inuit, in front of the church that had said, no, we don't want to have any part of this, and you shouldn't have any part of your culture. Like, how liberating, liberating that must have and, been. And the resilience. Yeah. Like, when I watched that, it was just like, wow, these people are resilient. Yeah, yeah. And just, I just wonder the emotion of all of that, of finally being able to um, present their talent with pride, with pride amongst all of this. Yeah. 
And she said that was where she got emotional. Yeah. It wasn't the apology. It wasn't meeting the Pope. It was in seeing, for her, the Métis fiddlers mm-hmm. um, presenting to the Pope. Yeah, we did our season premiere last season on healing and accountability and the church's role in reconciliation as well. Um, why do we continue to have to talk about this? And why is it important that context continue to talk about reconciliation and healing? Yeah, I think, I think we have a unique perspective where we talk about it from almost the church's perspective. We don't speak for the church, of course, yeah. but our so what for that show was how does the church heal and bring healing and accountability to the wrongs done to ind- indigenous people? So we saw it as this two way, the church needs to heal as well as bring healing and so I think um, the events that have taken place since then, this, va- this um, delegation to the Vatican, the Pope coming, these conversations that have happened in the past year, um, especially since um, you know, unmarked graves have been found throughout the country, um, I think that's why we just have to keep having these conversations and um, making sure that we're telling the faith side of the story yeah. because there is still... So many, actually 25% of Indigenous people are still Catholic. Mm. And um, it's important to to hear from them about their faith, Mm -hmm. especially if their faith was introduced to them at residential school. Um, I think, well, I think you brought it up, Hilda Morin, Mm -hmm. played a clip of her um, saying the Jesus they taught me at residential school is not the Jesus I know today. I always remember that statement because it's just so profound that through all she went through in residential school that she could differentiate, um, yeah, what she's suffered, the Jesus she knows today. Hey, also a shout out to First People's Voices and their producer, Crystal Lavalley, who is continuously telling great First People's Voices stories um, and that faith thread that you talked about and how important it is to to hear, yeah, Christianity is alive and well in a lot of indigenous culture and communities. And uh, and there's still a lot of healing. And people are, there are a lot of people across this country that are part of that. Thank you for listening to Context Beyond the Headlines. And thank you to our guest, Cassidy Karen, for her honest conversation around what the Pope's apology means for reconciliation. Next time on Context, we look at what goes into a meaningful apology. I sit down with Andrew Blackwood, who wrote a book about the art of a genuine apology, and he tells us the five elements that make a genuine apology. Context Beyond the Headlines is a production of Crossroads Christian Communications. It is executive produced by Melissa McEachran, produced by Hannah Vanderkoy, edited by Kyle Smistra, and hosted by me, Maggie John. <laughs>